from the new media project at the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, wavefront optimized surface ablation goes head-to-head with LASIK. So we wanted to see how patients with LASIK compared to patients with surface ablation. And the second goal of the study was to see how quickly patients became functional after surface ablation. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Randleman declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. As seen from here, the first podcast for physicians, the first podcast to offer CME credit, and the first to offer multinational editions, is now co-sponsored by the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. The ASCRS recognizes the power of this new medium in communication and education of physicians everywhere. This partnership will allow us to bring new content to you and add new voices to our community. From Manhattan to Mumbai, from the Bay Area to Beijing, one conversation as seen from here. Wavefront optimized surface ablation has several advantages over LASIK. No flap complications, thicker residual stromal beds, not to mention the fact that the procedure is wavefront optimized. Patients like LASIK because it is more comfortable and provides faster visual recovery. But as physicians, our frame of reference has to extend beyond the first postoperative week. Brad Randleman speaks to us today about his comparison of wavefront-optimized surface ablation and LASIK. Brad, what is ASA and how does it differ from PRK? Uh, well, ASA is, is a kind of a new catch term, advanced surface ablation. And in some ways, it's very similar. Um, it, advanced surface ablation really... Uh, is is a broader term that includes modern PRK, uh, LASIK, and EpiLASIK. But it differs from uh, the way people think of PRK in the past in that generally instead of just manually scraping the epithelium and just allowing the, the eye to heal, um, most folks are using uh, some kind of alcohol or some other method to aid in the removal of the epithelium, which makes that process a little easier. And also, uh, quite a few people are using mitomycin C, at least in high-risk patients, if not in all patients, to prevent the haze that was uh, associated with early PRK. So, so that's the primary way that it's different. How is this procedure, then, different from just straight LASIK? Well, LASIK actually requires you to put the epithelial sheet back down, and we don't do that. So again, you know, all of the advanced surface ablation techniques are doing treatment just underneath the epithelium. Some of them are, you know, again, either removing the epithelium altogether or moving it back in a flap and then putting it back down. So there are some minor varieties, but that's uh, the, the, the way that uh, is different from LASIK is that we weren't putting the epithelial flap back down, but we were using mitomycin C on everybody. What role does mitomycin play? It inhibits uh, fibroblast formation and activity so that the uh, keratocytes don't have a scarring type reaction. Uh, it's thought that the 
the lack of epithelium combined with the loss of Bowman's, which is inevitable with a surface ablation treatment, stimulates uh, haze formation because of the fibroblast activity, and the mitomycin inhibits that in the treatment zone. What did you seek to investigate in this study? Well, we were looking to see, uh, primarily we were looking for two things. We were looking to see how patients uh, compared uh, in the in the early long term, that's sort of a misnomer, I guess, but once they reached stability, which is a, a routinely at a three-month exam is when we check people, and, and most folks have reached uh, refractive stability at that point in time. So we wanted to see how patients with LASIK compared to patients with surface ablation. And the second uh, goal of the study was to see how quickly patients became functional after surface ablation, because we know that LASIK heals more quickly, but we didn't really know at what point most patients became functional after surface ablation, and we didn't really know uh, if, uh, if the outcomes were as good, because some patients just aren't real good LASIK candidates, but uh, are candidates for surface treatment, and we wanted to know if we could tell these folks um, that they were getting, you know, as good a procedure or a better procedure or not quite as good of a procedure. It would give them some ideas and also, you know, give them a ballpark on how quickly they might be able to do most of their normal activities again, such as drive and do work and those kind of things. Brad, can I have you describe the design of this study? Yes, it was a retrospective comparison. Uh, what we did, because um, at our center, as in most places, the, there were many more LASIK cases performed over any given time period uh, than there were surface ablation cases. We looked for uh, over a certain uh, time period, uh, about, about a year, and we, we looked through all of the patients with advanced surface ablation that we had all of the necessary information, and then we matched those uh, with a population of patients that had LASIK. Um, that had the same prescription so that we, uh, we weren't comparing, you know, low myopes versus high myopes. We were trying to compare the same prescription treatment ranges uh, between patients uh, and looking at the patients retrospectively, but that we had enough information to be able to make some comparisons. How did the demographics of these two populations differ? Um, well, the demographics uh, were fairly similar. The, the the advanced surface ablation patients uh, were a little bit younger, um, but not dramatically so. A their average age was about 35 versus about 39 with the LASIK patients. The, the uh, preoperative refractions were nearly identical. The, the main difference was that uh, the surface ablation patients uh, had thinner corneas preoperatively, which is, is what we anticipated because that's one of the primary indicators for doing surface ablation is a, a patient that uh, has a normal cornea but otherwise uh, doesn't have but doesn't have enough corneal thickness to be able to treat any given prescription and so we anticipated that there that that would be one of the major indicators meaning that many of these patients had come in expecting lasik but were told that their corneas were too thin for lasik and then were offered surface ablation instead that's correct that's exactly right how was wavefront data used in the treatment? Uh, all of these procedures were performed with um, a laser that is uh, considered a wavefront optimized uh, laser platform. It's the the wavelight is, is the company. The specific laser was the Allegretto laser, 
Um, wavefront optimized treatment is a little bit different from both conventional laser treatment and from wavefront guided treatment. Conventional laser treatment uh, has a fairly set treatment zone and uh, is, is the more traditional types of treatments that have happened in the past that have been generally pretty good at correcting refractive error but have had problems um, with nighttime visual quality, glare halos, etc., those kind of, of uh, things because the periphery of the cornea uh, was not treated quite as effectively. Wavefront guided uh, is a type of treatment where there's some specific mapping done uh, looking at high-order aberrations that exist in the cornea and trying to specifically treat those in addition to sphere, cylinder, the, the regular refractive errors. What a wavefront optimized treatment does is it actually primarily treats the, the refraction, but it also takes into account the curvature of the cornea, the, the, uh, the corneal power, corneal thickness, um, as, as well as the prescription so that not only is the prescription treated, but the periphery of the cornea is treated in such a way that it minimizes any of the nighttime type problems. And we also, you know, I guess a third piece of our study was that we had never, there have not been any uh, wavefront optimized surface ablation uh, results reported. And so we wanted to see how well they fared with that as well. Can you tell me more about how the Wavelight Allegretto Wave Excimer laser works? Uh, yeah, the... It is a flying spot uh, laser, which many of the more modern lasers are, as opposed to a broad beam or a slit beam where a lot of the energy is applied all at once. This is a flying spot laser. Uh, it is one of the fastest uh, treating lasers, which is beneficial because it does not allow for dehydration of the cornea or, or other changes in the corneal surface because the treatment occurs so quickly. Uh, but the primary uh, the primary differentiating factor is that this laser nomogram has adjusted for the peripheral laser ablation. If if you think of the cornea and you realize that it's not flat, then a laser pulse that is applied to the periphery is not hitting the cornea in a flat plane like it is in the center of the cornea. It's hitting it at a more tangential angle, and so that has been. Uh, accounted for in the nomogram. That's why the corneal curvature values are important so that the peripheral treatment uh, is designed in a way that it will maximize the peripheral function of the cornea so that glare and halos and those types of problems will be minimized. Did the LASIK patients have wavefront-guided treatment too? Uh, they all had the same wavefront-optimized treatment. Everybody, all the patients in this study had the same, uh, the same type of treatment done with the same laser. Brad, can you tell me how the mitomycin was used? Uh, we used it uh, by using it on a corneal light shield, soaking in a corneal light shield. Uh, the, um, the percentage, I believe, was 0.02%. And uh, that was applied anywhere from 30 seconds to two minutes after the laser ablation was done, uh, depending on which surgeon was doing it. Um, most surgeons were using it for 30 to 60 seconds, but uh, a couple of people were using it up to two minutes on certain cases. What were your results? Well, some of the results were uh, the very early post-operative results were as we expected. In the first few days up to uh, the two-week mark, the LASIK patients saw better, which, which we certainly anticipated for the early uh, healing time. Uh, not only was their average visual acuity uh, significantly better, but 
looking at any kind of markers that you wanted to look at, the percent of patients that that achieved 2020 vision or patients that achieved 2040 vision was, was significantly better uh, for up to the first two weeks. It was better uh, for the LASIK patients than it was for the advanced surface ablation patients. However, by the three-month mark, the results were, were fairly equivalent, but if anything, they slightly favored uh, the advanced surface ablation patients. Uh, the average visual acuity was slightly better, and the percent of patients reaching 20-20 uh, vision was actually better at three months for the surface ablation patients than it was. As well, uh, we looked at the, the accuracy of the treatment, the percentage of patients that were within a half diopter of treatment, and, and it was very similar for both, and this was at three months. Um, you know, almost 90% of patients were within a half diopter after either treatment. Um, more of the LASIK patients tended to be uh, a little bit on the myopic side, more than a half diopter myopic, whereas more of the surface ablation patients tended to be a little bit on the hyperopic side. How do you think these data would have compared to a comparison between LASIK and PRK? I, I think that it probably would have been relatively similar, although I do think that the way that we removed the epithelium uh, improves the early healing of the epithelium so that I think that the visual recovery can be a little faster. I also think that the use of mitomycin C prevents any of the haze formation, which can show up by three months and uh, limit visual acuity. So I'm, I, I don't think without the mitomycin, I don't think that the three-month results would have been quite as good in the surface ablation patients. Can I have you speculate why the surface ablation patients wound up being more hyperopic than the LASIK patients? Is this just an error of the nomograms? Is it just that your sights were uh, were a little bit off, so to speak? Yeah. In, in fact, we didn't make any nomogram adjustments for either uh, population. So I think that you know part of our what our results showed is that um, both populations needed a slight nomogram adjustment. The surface ablation patients needed a, a slight nomogram adjustment to to correct for the hyperopia that was occurring, although not a very large adjustment. Uh, the LASIK patients needed a slight adjustment as well, and, and uh, you know, we've done that subsequently uh, to try to improve on that. Um, there seems to be um, more propensity uh, to, to overshoot a bit. All of these patients were myopic, so with the surface ablation, there tends to be a little bit greater chance to overshoot by a little bit, whereas uh, with LASIK, you really, uh, with this laser, we really needed to treat uh, the full amount uh, as opposed to trying to purposely undercorrect because it was undercorrecting a bit, uh, as we saw uh, with our results. So, so we did make some adjustments after that. Brad, what are the risks of topical mitomycin C? That's a good question, and I'm not sure that we um, have all of the answers for that yet. It does look to be fairly fairly safe and effective for at least in the relative short term um, that we've been using it on the cornea. It's been reported, uh, you know, maybe in uh, maybe for six or seven years in, in a variety of different uses um, for corneal refractive surgery. Some of the problems that have been reported after pterygium surgery or glaucoma surgery in terms of uh, scleral melts and those kind of things, um, we have not seen to be a factor uh, with the application uh, to the corneal surface. And I think that's both because the concentration that we're using is significantly lower and the times that we're applying it are significantly lower. Um, it, it really shouldn't have any systemic 
toxicity because uh, the cornea is, a, is avascular and, and really this uh, material is now absorbed. And uh, there, have, there have been some studies that have shown there's really no effect on the endothelium. Now, there have been a couple other studies that said it's a possibility. So uh, we're still looking into that, but it does not appear uh, that there is any real uh, negative impact, at least that we found at this time, from using mitomycin. Since these were wavefront-guided treatments, how much higher-order aberration was corrected after three months of healing? Well, these, these were actually wavefront-optimized. They were not uh, specifically wavefront-guided treatments. And uh, in this arm of, the, of uh, this study, we did not measure the higher-order aberrations. We actually have a separate study uh, underway where we are going to compare uh, those factors. But for this study, we did not analyze the higher-order aberrations. That, that were there either preoperatively or that uh, uh, how effective the treatment was postoperatively. What's the difference between wavefront-guided and wavefront-optimized? Wavefront-guided treatments specifically measure high-order aberrations preoperatively and adjust the treatment profile to try to treat those things, uh, whereas wavefront-optimized does not take higher-order aberrations into account when it... Uh, uh, when it's doing treatments. And so wavefront-optimized treatments are ideal for people who really don't have significant high-order aberrations preoperatively, which is, which is the, major- the majority of the population does not. Um, but for patients who have significantly abnormal corneas uh, preoperatively, then wavefront-guided treatments are more appropriate. And so those, those patients were not included in this study. Brad, having learned what you learned in this study, what do you do in your own practice now? Uh, well, actually, we've done uh, my personal practice. I have increased the amount of surface ablation that I have performed because I feel that it has a little bit better safety profile. And, and in looking at these patients, I was very encouraged by the results that we were getting in the long term. And, and really in the short term, too, I feel pretty comfortable counseling patients that the majority of patients will achieve functional vision within a week or so after treatment. That's not everybody. Um, and it certainly is something that, uh, you know, is, uh, we have to tell people that they will be slower to heal than if they'd had LASIK. But I feel very comfortable telling them that by the three-month mark, they'll be seeing at least as well as folks who had LASIK. And so if there's any indication at all to do surface treatment, I really don't hesitate to do that as opposed to LASIK because I, th- I think the safety profile is wonderful. And I think that the visual outcomes are, are really good at, at that point in time. Having said that, besides patients with thin corneas, who should have surface treatments and who should have LASIK? Um, I think that the people that are better candidates for surface treatment as compared to LASIK um, are younger patients, are probably a little bit better, uh, have a little bit better safety profile with surface treatment. I think that patients obviously with thinner corneas have a better uh, profile. Patients with any mild uh, abnormalities in their topography. Certainly not. I'm not advocating using any kind of treatment for people with real abnormal corneas. But if there's any suspicion on their topography that it's not completely normal, I think surface treatment is a better way to go because the cornea is relatively stronger afterwards. I also think that people that are in any type of activities, either work-related or uh, recreationally re- related, that uh, may ha- get hit in the eye, um, or those kind of things, I think that they have a better uh, opportunity for long-term safety with surface treatment because they don't risk any kind of flap uh, complications. Brad, is there anything you'd like to add about this study? Yeah, you know, the only thing I think that, um, I think the other thing that uh, we found 
interesting. The only other result that I didn't really talk about was when looking at patients, um, when comparing their the best vision they achieved before surgery compared with their best vision, meaning the best vision with glasses before surgery, comparing that to their uncorrected vision afterwards, that was one of the, the other things that I really found interesting about this, especially with the surface treatment patients. We had 66%, so two-thirds of patients saw at least as well, if not better, after surgery without any correction than they did before surgery. And I think that a lot of patients go into surgery thinking that they're going to be giving up a little bit of their of their best vision, but they do so with the trade-off of not having to wear any glasses or contacts, and most people are happy with that. But in looking at this, we actually found that the majority of patients didn't really give up anything, even after just one treatment, without doing enhancements or anything else. And so that, that was another thing that I found very encouraging. Brad, thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. It was good to talk to you. J. Bradley Randleman is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology in the section of Cornea External Disease and Refractive Surgery at the Emory Eye Center in Atlanta, Georgia. His paper, Outcomes of Wavefront Optimized Surface Ablation, is in press in ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Randleman or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.